tonight I'd like to talk about metta. I'll be talking this month about the four Brahma Viharas, starting tonight with metta. Can you hear? Yeah? Okay. Most people here are doing the Vipassana practice, the practice focusing on developing understanding and insight, the wisdom practice. This path that we are walking together is about developing both wisdom and warm-heartedness. Sometimes I think in the West that we can be a little bit of um, wisdom junkies. And sometimes in our headlong rush towards understanding, we may forget about the heart. For many of us, the heart needs help. I just read this great book called The Power of Kindness by an Italian author named Piero Ferrucci, and he says that we're living in an ice age of the heart, an ice age that began with the Industrial Revolution and is um, continuing today. And he proposes a number of causes for this ice age of the heart, many of which I um, resonate with. He said that some of the causes are the new living conditions and work, new technologies, the decline of the extended family, the great migrations in which people are uprooted from their birthplace, the fragmentation and superficiality of the contemporary world, and the accelerating pace of life. Another way he put it, he says, is we're experiencing global cooling in which human relationships are becoming colder. Now, it's a little impossible to know what it was like, really like before the Industrial Revolution, but I think a lot of us can resonate with what he's talking about. And we see that it's becoming um, more extensive and little things, things such as phones are now answered by computers. Um, doctors no longer have much time to talk to their patients. The newest thing with the automated checkouts at the supermarket, where you check yourself out rather than have somebody do it with you, for you. Kids spending a lot of time lost in video games. There's just many manifestations of this um, kind of a loss of warmth, I think between humans in, in our uh, society these days. The universal remedy for this ice age of the heart is kindness, is metta. Metta is healing for ourselves, it's feeling for healing for others, and it's healing for this world. So the Brahma-Vihara practice, which I'm assuming you're all somewhat familiar with since you're all experienced students, the Brahma-Vihara practice really addresses the cultivation of the heart. As you probably know, there's four what we call Brahma-Viharas, which means divine abodes, divine homes. Called such because dwelling in these mind states is like being in heaven. They are metta, are usually translated as loving-kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity. 
the four together provide a package deal on how to relate to others in their full humanity and how to relate to ourselves in our full humanity. As I said, I'll talk about each one of them, starting tonight with metta. Metta is often called the foundation for the other three, though really we see that all four um, a different one, different ones are appropriate for different circumstances, but definitely we need this foundation of goodwill or warm-heartedness to uh, cultivate the other three. One of my main teachers about metta is a monk named Miyatong Sayadaw from the Sagain Hills region of Burma, where I teach each January, politics permitting. His... Um, Simple presence just radiates metta. He loves to laugh. He laughs a lot. And we nicknamed him the happy monk because he was always so happy. So one time I asked him what seemed to me like the best question to ask him, which was, why are you so happy? And I expected him to give me a kind of um, wisdom answer. But his answer was, I have no ill will towards anyone. Or anything. Ill will, this is a, another way that um, metta is often described as the absence of ill will. So basically, he was saying, I have a heart full of metta. He says, I'm, and, and in his laughing way, he said, I'm not angry at you. I'm not angry at you. I'm not angry at anybody. I'm not angry at the snakes. And he would kind of list off um, how he didn't have any ill will. In Burma, people often practice what are known as the four guardian meditations or uh, meditation practices that are um, they're protective. The word guardian brings up the idea of protection, and metta is one of these four guardian meditations. And in this region of Burma, there are many monks and nuns that are doing metta for all of us, for all beings everywhere. It's nice to know that, that they're doing that for all of us. So metta is the moisture that sustains us and celebrates our place in this web of this world. And its expression is kindness. So metta really honors this relative world that we live in, where we interact with each other. And if we think about it, what are we developing wisdom for? We're developing it so that we can manifest open-heartedness and friendliness towards all beings. Aldous Huxley, a pioneer in philosophy, and human potential movement, and an author that most of us have heard of, he once said, people often ask me what is the most effective technique for transforming their life. It's a bit embarrassing that after years and years of research and experimentation, I have to say that the best answer is, just be a little kinder.
a story about Suzuki Roshi. A brief verse that has been recited at the Zen Center goes like this. Great robe of liberation, field far beyond form and emptiness, wearing Buddha's teaching, saving all beings. In the early 60s, this was chanted only in Japanese. No one knew what it meant. One day a student went to Suzuki Roshi and asked, What's the meaning of that chant that we do after meditation, after zazen? Suzuki said, I don't know. Katagiri Sensei, his assistant teacher, started going through the drawers looking for a translation. Suzuki gestured to him to stop. Then he turned to the student, pointed to his heart, and said, It's love. Sometimes we want to figure it all out. But perhaps what's really important is a gentle and kind heart. Love. So what is metta? It's usually translated as loving kindness. Sometimes it's translated as unconditional love or goodwill loving friendliness. Sometimes I like to use the word love. I feel like um, it stretches us a bit to call it love. And it's clear that I don't mean passionate, ardent, romantic love when I use the word and play with um, interchangeably with metta. I also sometimes like to use the word love because I'd like to reclaim it for um, what it really means rather than some of our... uh, Societal interpretations of love, which can be um, can be more about attachment. The Buddha considered metta to be a very important quality to develop. He explained to his monks, "Whatever kinds of worldly merit there are, all are not worth one sixteenth part." of the heart deliverance of loving-kindness. In shining and beaming and radiance, the heart deliverance of loving-kindness far excels them. So a heart full of metta is a heart that's open, that wishes others well, that wishes others happiness. Goodwill without self-interest. And fully developed metta makes no distinction between ourselves and others, between those that we like and those that we don't. It's open-hearted towards all. Metta is love that includes an understanding of how life is. So metta also includes wisdom. Fully developed, mature metta includes wisdom. It sees the full humanity of ourselves and others. Uniquenesses, strengths, weaknesses. It also knows that things change and that we can't hold on. 
So fully developed metta is love with equanimity. Equanimity that allows for change in life. That includes full acceptance of all the joys and sorrows that manifest in our lives. In insight practice, in vipassana, thoughts are considered equal. A thought is a thought. Doesn't matter what it's about, it's a thought. We're interested in understanding what a thought is, how it manifests. And on the absolute level, that is true. A thought is a thought, and they're all equal. However, on the relative level, there are wholesome thoughts and there are unwholesome thoughts. There are skillful thoughts and there's unskillful thoughts. When we do metta meditation or develop metta, it's a way of turning our thoughts in a wholesome direction, a skillful direction, towards thoughts of more care and concern and friendliness towards all beings. The Buddha said, The thought manifests as the word. The word manifests as the deed. The deed develops into character. The deed develops into habit, and habit hardens into character. So watch the thought and its ways with care, and let it spring from love, born out of concern for all beings. So I think you know that when we do the metta practice formally, and some of you you may be doing a period of it a day or a little bit of it at a beginning of a sitting. When we do it formally, we start out with the easiest person we can think of to remind ourselves of what metta is. It's really to remind us of what we already know because we know what metta is. We've all felt it that spontaneous opening of the heart. So we choose somebody perhaps that we really respect. Or we may choose somebody um, like a child, a baby, a kitten. Or perhaps, like I said, it might be somebody we respect, like a revered teacher like Miyatong Sayada, somebody who we think of them. And it's simple, it's uncomplicated. We feel open-hearted and wish well. So we start with somebody easy to remind us of what we already know. We don't really have to create metta. We have to um, find a way to touch it within ourselves. And then what we do is we stretch our hearts to include others, to include others that we love, where our relationships may be more complicated, and then to those that we don't know or, and those that may challenge us, may seem difficult, and then further to include all beings everywhere.
Metta makes our hearts softer, more pliable. It leads to feelings of connectedness and belonging, peace. Metta also strengthens the heart. So it both strengthens and gentles at the same time. When our hearts are strong in metta, we feel protected. We feel resilient. Strengthening metta can also help us deepen our wisdom practice. A number of years ago, quite a number of years ago, um, I was going through a period in practice where I was very um, aware of my suffering, acutely aware of my suffering, and feeling rather um, stuck in it, like, like things weren't changing very much. <laughs> um, and at that time, I didn't like metta practice at all. This is a confession. For the first eight years of my practice, I, I did not like metta practice. In fact, if I went to a retreat and they had a metta sitting, I would not go to the hall. Um, I had actually somewhat of an aversion to the metta practice. And so when I was going through this period, which was really like the first eight years of my practice, um, so it was really, really intense because um, we all go through those periods where we're, our suffering is very strong to us, and, and, and this is the good point is the awareness is strong, and yet it doesn't feel like it's strong enough for transformation at that time. So I went to my teacher, and I, uh, I said, you know, what, what can I do here? And he said, um, do a metta retreat. And um, I was like, no, don't make me. <laughs> but I trusted him, so I did. I went to um, IMS, and I did a two-month metta retreat. And it um, completely transformed my practice. It was really wonderful because it, it did both soften my mind and strengthen it and gave me... Um, the strength to open to new levels of suffering, which <laughs> was what I needed <laughs> for my practice to um, move on, actually. Um, so that's my, my plug for metta practice. Really, um, It gives us the strength to face um, our own personal stories of, you know, our own personal suffering, what conditioning we brought with us, perhaps from uh, childhood and all but also gives us the strength to face um, the truth about life, which isn't so easy, the truth of change, of anicca, of uncontrollability, vulnerability, all of that. Now I like metta practice. So when we talk about metta or love, sometimes um, what we have to learn is to distinguish it from uh, attached love. And this can take some time. We're often, um, our conditioning may be towards attached love, a love with expectations or um, 
love with demand or control or need, love with self-interest. Sometimes our society even tells us that these things are love, but they're not pure metta. It's metta confused with attachment. And when I use the word attachment, I don't, um, I'm not talking about a healthy attachment. I think there can be a healthy commitment between people, which we often call attachment. But I prefer to call that commitment and, um, and then use the word attachment in the Buddhist sense of um, contraction. So when we're cultivating metta and trying to understand what it is, we can notice how our hearts are. And if we feel this sense of contraction, then we know that there's probably some kind of attachment happening with our metta. And we can feel that this is a narrower kind of love. It's not that limitless kind of love that we develop with metta, that open-hearted, boundless love. We can feel that there's a narrowing or a smallness there. And part of understanding metta is exploring this. So it's not bad if we, ha- you know, if we experience that. It's actually this is what we start to understand and start to distinguish that from a real, a truly open heart. So there's a cool part of metta. The warm, there's the warm part of the open-heartedness. And the cool part is the equanimity. So metta may be actually less ardent than we sometimes think of the word um, love. Metta can be very quiet and very still. It includes this understanding of how life is. It includes this understanding that we may wish well to ourselves and others and, and we may suffer still at times. Metta understands that we can't control others. Metta understands and includes all the joy and sorrow of life. And so the job with metta then is can we love and can we stay open even knowing that we can't control others, that we'll ultimately be separated from others, that love is actually a vulnerable business. So loving deeply is challenging for this reason because an open heart is a vulnerable heart. And so our hearts need time to relax and open to be able to hold this amount of vulnerability. The Korean master Sansanim said, great love, great sadness. True love isn't cheap, it has a price. It has the price of holding truth, vulnerability. So metta practice and vipassana practice are about learning open-heartedness and kindness. But part of that road is also experiencing our unkindness. 
In cultivating metta, we are challenged to face our small-mindedness. We're challenged to see where our limits are. So if we come up against them, this is great. This means we're doing it right. We're getting to see where we can grow. In that first uh, long metta retreat I did, I spent uh, quite a bit of time sending metta to myself and to my easy person, my benefactor. And um, what I realized at a certain point was, I went into my teacher and I said this, I said, I see that I've never wholeheartedly wished anybody well. And it was a great thing to see. It helped me to understand um, what metta was and to see that there was um, another way to relate to people, a more open-hearted way to relate. So metta will show us this. It'll show us where um, we hold back. It'll show us where we get uh, resentful, hateful, annoyed, fearful, envious. All of these other experiences that separate us from others and that obstruct the natural metta that wishes to flow from our hearts. So this um, all comes into this ill will, all comes into our awareness and and then awareness purifies. The Vusudhimaga, the path of purification, one of the commentaries calls metta a solvent that melts our psychic pollutants of anger, resentment, and ill will. So metta helps to heal our aversion and clear the obstacles to the open heart. One place that many of us encounter in our practice that needs healing is um, a lack of metta for ourselves. Traditionally, when this practice is done, um, our self comes first. I think most of you know this. Because we're supposed to be the easiest person. It's supposed to be natural that we would feel metta for ourselves. But many folks in the West find that that, that isn't true, that Ourself is one of the hardest people to feel kind towards. So sometimes when we practice, we'll discover a certain kind of harshness with ourselves. An inner critic that wants to comment on all of our behavior. An inner critic that wants to let us know just how badly we're doing at everything, at our practice, including our practice. This is one of the most common issues that we hear about as teachers. I actually think it's part of the ice age of the heart. I think it has to do with the kind of culture that we live in, a very individualistic culture that really um, encourages competition and... um, doesn't encourage uh, acceptance. 
And sometimes we don't really, um, I don't think we realize how much exposure to advertising we get that really preys on unworthiness, that preys on um, developing unworthiness, feelings of unworthiness. Unhappy people buy a lot more. They, they found this to actually be true. And we're exposed to this uh, so much. I think it also deeply conditions us towards unworthiness. So cult- cultural individualism, competition, advertising, there's so many reasons. And so um, there's more. There's, that's not that simple, I know. But anyway, we come to practice and we'll often find that we'll have this harsh attitude towards ourselves. That we'll treat ourselves worse than, than we treat an enemy. So practice at first may expose this. That's uh, the awareness that's wonderful and can be difficult. And we can um, consciously cultivate an attitude of metta to help heal these wounds. We can learn to wish ourselves happiness, peace, safety, well-being. We can start with just the intention. If we don't feel it at first, just the intention to be kind towards ourselves. I think Vipassana practice also develops metta for ourselves as we bring our awareness to our experience, whatever it is, as it arises, and hold that experience, accept that experience as it is, that seems to me like a form of metta. We may uh, start practice feeling like we're some kind of fix-up project. That's how I felt at first, that that um, somehow practice was going to make me better than I was, that there was something wrong with me and that practice would make me better. It was a certain kind of harshness, this kind of harshment, harshness of self-judgment. And slowly through practice, just learning to accept and hold whatever came up, I started to see that I was deeply okay just as I am. And I started to understand how transformation, deep transformation, comes from the starting point of acceptance. Acceptance of how we are at this moment. Sometimes we think that deep transformation comes out of aversion. If I could just get rid of this, then I'd be okay, or I'd be better. But no, it comes out of that deep um, willingness to be and hold what is. And then we see that transformation happens. So in our practice, our Vipassana practice, we can check to see if there's a spirit of metta, if we're including that. How are we relating to our experience? Is there love? Is there metta? Acceptance, or is there reactivity and rejection? We can't force metta, but we can incline the mind in that direction. So I hope that even if you aren't doing any formal metta practice, 
that you're developing in your metta in your practice by relating with kindness towards your experience. So perhaps anger comes up or fear comes up or an old unresolved pattern of heart and mind. And you can say, Hello, my old friend. How are you today? Turning with a sense of care and kindness towards these challenges. I think Pema Chodron is one of the, uh, a Tibetan teacher is one of the. Um, great representatives of um, metta. Here's what she has to say about loving kindness. But loving kindness towards ourselves doesn't mean getting rid of anything. Metta means that we can still be crazy after all these years. We can still be angry after all these years. We can still be timid or jealous or full of feelings of unworthiness. The point is not to try to change ourselves. Meditation practice isn't about trying to throw ourselves away and become something better. It's about befriending who we already are. The ground of practice is you or me or whoever we are right now just as we are. That's the ground. That's what we study. That's what we come to know with tremendous curiosity and interest. It's about befriending who we are. So we can really use ourselves as um, a guinea pig to develop this quality of metta by looking at how we're relating to our experience that arises. And we find that as we can develop more kindness and acceptance towards our own experience, that we naturally can do that towards others. So we see that as we develop metta for ourselves, it begins to flow out in how we feel towards others. It's kind of like a natural law of the universe. It's if you have a glass of a glass and you pour water in it, or even if you just put a drop in at a time, eventually the glass fills and then it overflows. So we can fill our hearts with metta and then they overflow towards others. We want to share it. So it's, it's easiest to start um, metta with those that we love, those that we know. But eventually we break down the idea that we have to have a personal connection to feel kindness. We understand more deeply the universality of a wish to be happy. How we're all the same in this. We're all connected in our wish to be happy. Through metta, everybody becomes our friend. So we may, so we'll move onwards and uh, share metta with neutral people, people we don't know very well or have strong feelings for, and then we even stretch further towards those that we may find are challenging. 
The Buddha talked about the power of metta to transform our environment and those people around us. Sometimes people worry that if we practice metta, we'll become some kind of doormats. Metta doesn't mean that we abandon common sense. We can make our decisions out of wisdom rather than aversion. Limits may need to be set. A number of years ago, quite a number of years ago, I um, lived in an area where I like to go for a a bike ride for exercise, and there were only two ways you could go, and I had a preference for one way, and there was a little band of dogs that lived um, at a certain curve in the road, and they would bark at me and scare me, and um, I would yell back at them, and uh, it was generally just not a very pleasant situation. And so then one day I was like, those dogs, I'm not going to let those dogs get me. So I loaded my pockets up with rocks and went um, off biking towards the dogs. And before I got to them, I kind of reconsidered. I thought, you know, this is getting a little bit out of hand here. I don't think uh, rocks are perhaps the best way to deal with this situation. So I tried yelling at the dogs and everything. I thought, you know what, I'm going to try some metta. I'm going to try approaching these dogs with the belief that um, that we can work it out and um, that they're basically good dogs. And so um, I got to the place where the dogs were, and I got off my bike. I put the bike in front of me. I was like, I wasn't going to get too close. But I just started to talk to them. Um, I said, look, guys, we got a little problem here. <laughs> I like to bike. You're scaring me. Um, And so really, I really want you to stop this. And uh, they kind of growled a little bit more and barked. And and I said, no, no, you can't do that to me. I was very firm. (laughs) said, no, I'm going to bike by here, and and, uh, you're not going to do this anymore. And the amazing thing was um, they quit. There was something about the way that I, I was I was very firm with them, but I was very kind, and uh, we worked it out. And then after that, I'd bike by there, and uh, they quit barking at me. So I'm really glad that I put the rocks aside. I guess you could call those ill will. <laughs> and um, and uh, tried some metta. So metta's good karma. It's a wholesome intention. When we have a heart of metta, we experience the world as friendlier. When we feel love, our environment appears nicer. There's a story, a Hindu story. Lord Krishna wanted to test the wisdom of his kings. One day he summoned a king called Duryodhana. Duryodhana was well known throughout his kingdom for his cruelty and miserliness, and his subjects lived in terror. Lord Krishna said to King Duryodhana, I want a truly good man. 
Dira Donna replied, Yes, Lord, and he obediently began his search. He met and spoke with many people, and after much time had passed, he returned to Lord Krishna, saying, Lord, I have done as you have asked and searched the world over for one truly good man, and he is nowhere to be found. All of them are selfish and wicked. Nowhere is there to be found this good man that, you, that you're looking for. Lord Krishna sent him away and called another king called Dhammaraja. He was a king well known for his generosity and benevolence and well loved by all his people. Can you see where this is going? <laughs> Krishna said to him, King Dhammaraja, I wish for you to travel the world over and bring me one truly wicked man. One truly wicked man. Dhammaraja also obeyed and on his travels men spoke with many people. After much time had passed, he returned to Krishna, saying, Lord, I have failed you. There are people who are misguided, people who are misled, people who act in blindness, but nowhere could I find one truly evil man. They are all good at heart, despite their failings. So the second king saw with the uh, heart and eyes of Metta, And his world, we can assume, was a much friendlier one to live in than the first king. As we practice metta, as our hearts grow in metta, it's really beautiful to recognize our capacity for love. Walt Whitman said, I am larger and better than I thought. I did not think I held so much goodness. I am larger and better than I thought. I did not think I held so much goodness. When we develop metta in our hearts, we come to recognize our goodness and our largeness, and it's a very beautiful experience and then we start to express that goodness and that largeness and kindness and care and concern for others kindness is the natural expression of metta so we often think of kindness as being kind to people which is important obviously But we can extend our feeling of kindness to animals, other beings. I find that as I practice more metta that even animals feel like my brothers and sisters. I come down in the morning, we have bird feeders at my house, and I say hello to the birds. It's like, hi guys, how are you today? I even named some of the different wild birds. There's um, there's a rose-breasted grosbeak. And he has a certain pattern on his chest. He comes back every year. And we just call him Mr. Because um, he, he, he sings a lot. <laughs> so, oh, Mr.'s back. Hi, Mr. How are you? But I've practiced now extending metta to um, uh, inanimate things. I think that how we treat um, the table, the book, the cushion, all that can be a manifestation of kindness too. (laughs) 
in the Vasudhi Magha, again, the, the commentaries they talk about, uh, I think most of you have heard about kind of the different Buddhist personality types. Well, I, um, I'd say that my, my primary type that I've worked with through practice is the aversion type. And they talk about aversive types. They say that they describe each type and they talk about aversive types. They say they, they sweep the, the floor angrily and they walk um, with a, a hard foot and <laughs> they describe like they do everything like with a certain kind of that kind of energy. And um, I've noticed over the years, and, and it's a conscious practice too, to actually relate to the, the broom with kindness. Walk on the floor with kindness. Zen practice emphasizes this a lot. We don't so much in Theravadan practice, but in Zen practice there's a lot of different rituals like in how you um, relate to your eating bowl and everything to kind of manifest that purity of heart that includes all, um, all things. And in case you think I'm a little, a little out there, um, Dogen, the great uh, Zen master, said that um, rocks and... and uh, Things like that have um, Buddha nature too. So, there's a lovely Zen story that I think kind of shows this um, this quality of kindness with all things. It's from Zen, the Tradition and Transition by Morinaga Soko. The first task I was given was to sweep the garden with a bamboo broom. So I grasped my broom and swept mightily and soon had a mountain of leaves. I asked, Roshi, where should I put all this rubbish? Hoping he would see how good I had been. He immediately roared, Leaves are not rubbish. Go to the shed and bring any empty charcoal sacks you can find there. Coming back, I found the Roshi vigorously raking through the pile of leaves so that any stones or gravel fell to the bottom. He then took the sacks and filled them to the very last leaf, packing them tightly with his feet. Now go put these back in the shed, he said. They're kindling for the bath fire. When I came back, I saw the Roshi squatting on the ground, picking out the small stones from what remained. When he had carefully gathered them together to the very last pebble, he said, now put these beneath the eaves. I was still quite sure that the remaining lumps of earth and scraps of moss could serve no useful purpose. Yet the Roshi just collected them together without fuss and placed them in the palm of his hand. Searching patiently, he put the lumps of earth into depressions in the ground, then firmed them in with his foot until nothing remained. He said, Now do you understand a little? Originally, there is no rubbish in either men or things. This was the first teaching I received from Zygon Roshi. The Roshi's words that originally there is no rubbish either in men or in things actually comprise the basic truth of Buddhism. Such kindness with the leaves and the rocks and the pebbles and the earth. Yesterday, as I was driving here, I was listening to the news on the radio. And um, 
There was a story of a, of a classroom teacher, an elementary school teacher in California, and she didn't want uh, her students to squash any bugs in her class, so she made a policy in her class that there was no squashing or killing bugs, insects, or anything, and she assigned a bug monitor, which would be one of the students who his job would be to take the, um, the bugs outside, any bugs that showed up in the, in the classroom. I just get this image of this proud little boy, like, carrying the spider out, you know, like, can I be the bug monitor today, you know? <laughs> um, she said there was so much violence in society that she wanted her students to have an experience of the opposite. I really uh, loved this story. First of all, I think maybe she was a Buddhist, slyly infiltrating society. Um, but I loved it first for this very beautiful teaching for the children of kindness. But second, I was just so um, thrilled with the um, fact that it was on the radio and that that little act, you know, was heard over in national public radio is a pretty well, you know, it's heard all over the whole country. And I wonder who it will inspire, you know. So our little acts of kindness, sometimes they can ripple out in ways that we don't. Um, even now, but I'm sure it inspired somebody. So we can spread kindness just as um, just as easily as uh, the ice ages come. We can spread kindness. Never underestimate the power of an act of kindness. I'd like to end with just reading the Metta Sutra from our friend the Buddha. Wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short, or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upward to the skies and downward to the depths, outward and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Standing, walking, sitting, or lying down throughout all one's waking hours, one should practice this mindfulness. This, they say, is the supreme state. Let's sit for a minute.
May all beings be happy. May all beings be peaceful. May all beings be safe. May all beings be free from suffering. Shall we chant the reflections on the sharing of blessings? Through the goodness that arises from my practice, May my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue, my mother, my father, and my relatives, the sun and the moon, and all virtuous leaders of the world, may the highest gods and evil forces Celestial beings, guardian spirits of the earth, and the Lord of death, may those who are friendly, indifferent, or hostile, may all beings receive the blessings of my life. May they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless. Through the goodness that arises from my practice and through this act of sharing, may all desires and attachments quickly cease and all harmful states of mind until I realize Nibbana in every kind of birth. May I have an upright mind with mindfulness and wisdom, austerity and vigor, May the forces of delusion not take hold, nor weaken my resolve. The Buddha is my excellent refuge. Unsurpassed is the protection of the Dhamma. The solitary Buddha is my noble guide. 
The Sangha is my supreme support. Through the supreme power of all these, may darkness and delusion be dispelled. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.